Hey, Rockbridge, welcome. My name is Matt, one of the pastors on our team. Happy Easter, Cleveland. Happy Easter up in Hickson. And then our North Georgia campuses of Ringgold, Dalton, Calhoun, and Chatsworth. Happy Easter. And then if you're watching online, uh, from whether you're in Ecuador or any of these regions in the Tennessee Valley, hey, thank you so much. We're uh, just delighted and excited to celebrate Easter with you. If you are watching online, love for you to throw in the chat or the comment box where you're watching from. Somebody would love to say hello to you or uh, give you a shout out or be able to follow up with you. And hey, listen, let's do this before we get started. All right, let's believe we're here for a reason. Let's believe God has something for you today, right now, in this moment, and he promises to meet with us as we meet with him through his word. Hey, before we get to work, let's, uh, let's look forward to something. We know that uh, there's a lot of you that have been cele- have celebrated maybe the birth of a child. So church-wide, all six physical locations, we'll even do one online if we need to. We'll have child dedication on Mother's Day, which is uh, on May the 9th. So excited about that. So listen, as you walked in here today, I want to talk about a couple of things that are true of all of us, people from all walks of life, whether you're a Christ follower or, you know, you're just coming because it's tradition and your mom wanted you to come or your grandma wanted you to come or listen or whatever. Here's something that's true of all of us. Every single one of us, we're promise-driven people. We're promise-driven people from your biology and my biology that you just took a breath of air and, and you just banked on the fact that there was oxygen that you needed. And so we need that, the promise of provision and creation. We need that. We're promise-driven when we go to work because our bosses, our employers promise to give us a, a paycheck. We're promise-driven in our relationships. Hey, if I spend time with this person or do certain things with that person, hopefully it'll, I'll be better or I'll be blessed or I'll get something from it. So we're all like promise-driven people. But yet, here's the challenge of that. Promises are full of potential, like, hey, tomorrow's going to be better than today, and 2021 is going to be better than 2020, and hey, maybe your, your, the next decade of your life will be better than the last decade. Maybe your next marriage will be better than your current. I mean, all that stuff, right? So there's potential in promises, but there's also pain in promises because every single person has experienced an empty promise. Every single person has experienced banking on something, betting on something. Hey, I'm going to have a good time on Friday night. and It didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to turn out. I mean, we've all done those kind of things, right? We've all experienced empty promises, whether it's relationally, financially, with a career, with a job, with which school we went to, with the first car we bought, with the first girl we kissed. I mean, we've all experienced that, right? And and so there's pain associated with promise. So there's potential because we're promise-driven people. And there's pain, and so when you combine those two together, there's this kind of this fear, this uncertainty, and this hope all mixed together. And and so, you know, it seems like when when we think about this and we get underneath this that we're promise-driven people, there's like three categories of people. There's people who are just exhausted, exhausted after the current season you've gone through, and you didn't think you'd be dealing with this, you didn't think you would have to do with that, but because the promise that drove you or the promise that you were banking on was not as sure as you thought it was, was not as safe as bed as you hoped it was, and so you're just exhausted. There's another group of people here today, and you're just deceived because the promise that's driving you right now is not going to pan out. You may not be able to know that yet or see that yet or understand that yet or believe that yet, but, but you're just deceived by that promise. And then there's a third group of people, and that's the people who are like, you're hopeful. Hey, I'm hoping that tomorrow is better than today. I'm hoping that, uh, that the promise I'm living by or living for is going to turn out and everything's going to work out. And so we're exhausted, we're deceived, and we're hopeful. But here's the second part of being a promise-driven purpose person. 
promises require our participation. Like if I'm going to bank on uh, <clears throat> this car to get me from there, get me from A to B, I've got to get in the car and go. So promises require our participation. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to offer up a, the right promises to drive our lives. But we'll have to agree or we'll have to say yes or we'll have to participate. We're going to talk about the right promises or a right promise to move forward in faith, to move forward so that tomorrow is better than today. And it all hinges upon something that Jesus talked about, something that Jesus did. And so we're going to look at the first time in Scripture, Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 8, the first time in Scripture when Jesus promised to do something that was remarkable, that was unbelievable, that was crazy. They didn't even have, the, 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 the people who heard it didn't even have a paradigm to believe it or to comprehend it. It was so outlandish. But it's the first time he started talking about this particular promise and how it opens the gate, opens the door for our participation in the life of God. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn them on, look in, follow along with me, but they'll be on the screen for you as well. So Jesus goes out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, he said, who do people say that I am? Probably no more significant question than that in all of humanity. Hey, who's Jesus to you? And they answered, and they said, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, so they picked, you know, John the Baptist and some Old Testament prophets, still others, one of the prophets, and Jesus gets real personal with them. He says, okay, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? I don't, it'd be like saying, hey, I know you were raised in church, and I know who your parents thought I was, but who do you say that I am? I know your grandmother, you know, took you to church on Christmas and Easter, and I know you go to Christmas, you know, go to church a couple of times a year, but who do you say that I am? I want to know what you think. And then Peter speaks up, and we'll focus in on Peter a little bit today. Peter speaks up, and he says, you are the Messiah. And he, and then Jesus strictly warned them to tell no one about him. And so when Jesus, when Peter says that you're the Messiah, he's saying, hey, God made a promise to the Jewish people that through the Jewish bloodline of King David, God was going to bring a redeemer. God was going to bring a king. God was going to bring a leader, a Messiah, a Christ, the anointed one, a savior. And when Peter says that, he's saying, God, you're the one we've been waiting on. In fact, the first promise of a Messiah king is found in Genesis 3 right after the big oops of humanity when Adam and Eve rejected God's promise and chose the promise of the forbidden fruit. Right after that, God says, hey, I'm going to do something to undo all this mess that you're making because my mercy is always bigger than your mistake. My mercy is always bigger than your mess. So God made a promise. And so Peter's like, hey, you're the one. We've been waiting thousands of years, and here you are in, in the flesh, in history. And this begins to open up a door for us that where we understand that God's primary way of relating to people is by his promises, by his promises. Like, we want to relate to God by, hey, it, what's tried and true and what's proven, but God's going to relate to us by his promises. But that's true of any relationship you've ever been in, Right? There's always a promise element of that relationship. There's always a promise of, of their character or their trustworthiness or they're going to come through on their side. If you've been on any team and any organization and any family, that the way of relating is our ability to make and or keep our promises. And so this is God's primary way that we see all throughout Scripture. I'm going to relate to my people through promises. Now this sets us up for competition, conflict, and confusion. Because the world makes promises. Your ego makes promises. 
Other people make promises to you. Satan, the, the enemy of God, the enemy of God's people, he makes promises. And the battle that you and I face right now, and if we were to say, hey, how are you really doing and how are you really doing, we could, I could nail it down and dissect it by what promise are you believing in this moment? What promise are you believing? Are you believing the promise of sex, money, and power? Are you believing the, the promise of your performance, your accomplishments, your achievement? Are you believing the promise of religion? Are you believing the promises of God? Are you believing the promise? Of, so however you're doing, however I'm doing, is always traced back to which promises are we trusting. And there's a battle for your trust and your participation. And there's a conflict there. And we're going to see this conflict emerge as Jesus takes his promise and dives deeper and goes, one, and goes another layer deeper with his disciples. So here's what he says. After they confess him to be the Messiah, he begins to teach them that it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things. So the God King, the Savior King they've been waiting on, hey, he's going to have to suffer and he's going to be rejected by all the Jewish leaders, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And not only that, he's going to suffer, be rejected, and he's going to be killed He's going to be crucified by the Romans. And then Jesus says, and here's the big promise, I'm going to come back to life or he's going to rise after three days. First time in all of Scripture, Jesus predicts, I'm going to come back to life. I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to come back to life. And it begins to kind of show us the pattern that a promise always takes. Promise always takes this pattern, the pattern of there's the promise, there's the process, and there's the payoff. Now, here's what's happened to you and I in our culture and why we're finding it harder and harder to stay with God. Is we want a short circuit, shortcut, short-live, or eliminate the process. And we don't like it because we just want to get to the payoff. In fact, there's a value in our culture on who can do it quickest, who can do it fastest, who can make the process the shortest and the least painful. Right? And so we, we put all that onto God, we put all that onto our process, and that's the, promise, that's, that's the battle that we're facing, right? That, who's, who can get there quicker? Who can get there sooner? And so Peter it gets this promise pattern from God who says, hey, I'm going to have to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be put in the ground. And it creates confusion and conflict and competition. Because, see, most people are going to miss the payoff because the promise is empty couldn't pan out, or because they quit at some point during the process. That's what most people will do. And so Jesus throws his promise out, and it creates this conflict within Peter. And so here's where the conflict takes. Peter, Jesus begins to speak openly about this, the death, the resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And Peter, who's just said, Jesus, you're the one we've been waiting thousands of years for, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, begins to correct him, begins to say, no, God, this is not how you ought to work. No, Jesus, this is not how I want you to do things. No, Jesus, what's a better plan is my plan. Because Peter wanted a political Messiah. Peter wanted an earthly king. Peter wanted to overthrow the Romans and take back the literal geographical promised land. Peter didn't want this whole suffering Messiah. Peter didn't want this crucified guy because crucifixion was shameful and embarrassing. This wasn't what he wanted. Has he, have any of us here ever argued with God because the way God wanted to do it is not the way you think he should have done it? Promise, process, payoff. God, I don't like your process, so I'm not going to wait for your payoff. I'll pursue my own payoff with another promiser. 
That's the story of humanity. It's the story of most of our pain. It's the story of most of our confusion. It just comes back to which promise and which promiser are you going to trust? Are you going to bank in? Are you going to follow? And so here's Peter rebuking the Messiah. Now here's the problem that Peter has. To Peter, this promise, this crucifixion, resurrection is unbelievable and unacceptable. It's not what he's waited on. It's not what he's dreamed about. It's not why he left the fishing nets and left his career as a fisherman. Peter's promise-driven life is defined by his perspective, his wants, and his concerns. Peter wants Jesus to do something different. Peter wants Jesus to do something Jesus never promised to do. Most of our confusion about God is we think God promises to do certain things that he's never promised to do. And so Peter has this promise problem and this conflict with God over this subject. And so now, look, God's wisdom, God's power, and God's goodness are in doubt. God, do you really have my best interest? God, do you really want me to be happy? God, do you really want what's best for me? Because, God, your process doesn't seem to lead to the payoff that I want, that I think I deserve, that I think I've been banking on. And I'm not so sure about you anymore, God. And it all comes back to which promise are we trusting in? And which promise are we banking on? And so Jesus, because he loves Peter, because he loves us, he refuses to stop here. And he refuses to let Peter settle for less than his best. So Jesus turns the table. He turns around, looks at his disciples. He rebukes Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. That seems kind of harsh. We'll unpack that in a minute. But he's like, get behind me, Satan, after Peter had just said, you're the Messiah. And Jesus is like, hey, I want nothing to do with what you just said. I want nothing to do with the promise-driven path you just laid out. Because you are not thinking about God's concerns. But you're thinking about human concerns. In other words, you, Peter, are going to settle for less than God's best. You, Peter, are pursuing something that is antithetical and opposite and contrary to what God wants for you. And here's where we find ourselves as human beings. Remember, we're promise-driven, and promises require our participation, and there's a battle for which promise you're going to bank on, trust in, follow, and pursue. Your promise participation always sets your potential. It always sets your potential. And are we going to go with what the world promises, what our heart wants, what our flesh, our ego wants? Are we going to go with what they promise? Or or, are we going to say, okay, God, you're a promise maker. And and you've got something for us. There's a payoff from your promise. But your process, God, I don't understand it. I don't get it always. So so are we, and this this one's going to happen quicker. And if I shortcut here and short circuit there, I think I'll get where I want and what I want. And it'll be better off. So, So we're in this battle, right? And Jesus loves Peter too much, loves you and I too much to let us settle for less than what his promises make possible. Let me say that again. God loves you too much to let you settle for less than his promises make possible. What do his promises make possible? Second Peter, written by the Peter who's struggling with the current promise, he comes around. Look what he says in 2 Peter 1.4. We were also given absolutely terrific promises. This is a paraphrase. Absolutely terrific promises. Your tickets to participation. Here's the possibility. Here's the potential. In the life of God. In the life of God. I wonder how many of us today. That, that excites us. 
I want to participate in the life of God. I want to participate in the story of God. I want to participate in the purposes and the plans of God, which are so bigger than Mark 8, Peter's political aspirations. So bigger than Luke 5, the economic career fisherman aspirations of the disciples. I'm going to pursue and participate in the promises that lead me to the life of God. See, that's what a promise is. When God makes a promise, here's all, he's, here's all it is. It's the assurance he gives to you and I so that we can walk by faith in him as he works for us. It's assurances that God is going to do what he says so we can walk by faith in him as he works for us. And so right now, if we were to dissect our lives, we would be tr- all of us are trusting certain promises. We're trusting, <clears throat> are we trusting God's per- promises or our performance or our ability to be in control? Our promises, God's promises or fear and worry? God's promises or the way of the world. God's promises or somebody's approval that you're living for that you need, that you think you need to be happy. God's promises or your past. Everybody here today, everybody listening today, there's, there's promises you're trusting right now. And if we trace your fear or your worry or your anxiety, some of you, you're trusting your performance and you're wondering, man, am I good enough? Am I going to get the applause of the crowd? Some of you are like, man, I don't know how to win their approval. I got some likes on Facebook by what I posted, but I, I'm thinking I should post again, but what if I don't get the approval I need? And, and you're in this circle and cycle and it's just a challenge, but we dissect it. It's like, which promises are you banking on? Which promises are you banking on? Now, The invitation of God is going to be to shift the weight and shift from here to over here and trust in his promises. Now, for us, though, here's here's kind of the good news. This is a process. This is progressive because what happens is the disciples, they lived as if it would not happen, as if the resurrection would not happen. And so after Jesus is killed, after Jesus is killed, where do we find the disciples? Huddled up, afraid, locked in a room. Scared, anxious, and that's not God's will for their lives or our lives. They're confused, not God's will for their lives or our lives. They're wondering if the best is yet is behind them or ahead of them. And God always is saying the best is yet to come. And so uh, sitting in a circle wondering if, if you're going to die or not, sitting in a circle wondering if, hey, maybe this guy Jesus is not who we thought he was and it's not going to be as good as we had hoped it was going to be. That's not God's will for their lives, but that's where they are. But guess what happens? And that's why we're here today, right? Jesus kept his promise. Jesus kept his promise. So after the resurrection, or excuse me, after the crucifixion the next day, which followed preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together before Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that while this deceiver was still alive. Now, it's interesting that they called Jesus a deceiver, because what are they saying? He lied. His promises, his character, his integrity are not valid. He's a deceiver. Remember, there's a battle for which promises we choose to trust. This, while this deceiver was still alive, he said, so even Jesus' enemies knew what he promised. He said, after three days, I'll rise again. 
And so they said, Pilate, give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come steal him and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. A couple verses later, some ladies on Sunday morning go to the tomb of Jesus. And they encounter an angel. And the, tomb, the stone before the tomb had been rolled away. And the angel said, don't be afraid. Because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said. So come and see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples. So the fact of history and the fact is Jesus kept his promise. And we're here today because there's a historical fact that we're looking back upon and it's significant and it's important. And we need to understand that because Jesus kept that promise, it opens the door for a whole other way of living and a whole other way of looking at things for you and I. But let's first establish the fact that he kept his promise. Here's three reasons I think every single one of us can bank on the fact that the resurrection really did happen. The first is the reality of an empty tomb. All the Romans and the Jewish leaders had to do was produce a body, and they didn't. And we have six, six historical references to an empty, to the empty tomb of Jesus that was in Jerusalem. Six. Historians will be glad if they get two sources. We have six. Then we have the disciples' transformation. They went from cowards. They went from, Jesus, you'll never die, and get behind me, Satan. You remember that dialogue? Remember that interaction? And they become courageous, and all 11 of the 12 disciples die for what they saw and what it meant about who Jesus was. And then we have the first century church that preached the resurrection and lived with resurrection power. I mean, think about it just for a second. If we were to talk about the Roman the Roman Empire versus the church. In the first century, <clears throat> the Roman Empire was 2 million square miles. Okay, 2 million square miles. That's like seven times, uh, excuse me, 20 million square miles. That's like seven times the size of Texas. 20% of the world's population were citizens of Rome. There were 50,000 miles of roads. And there were 120 Christians. Today, unless you're a history major, you can't even name five Caesars. And the salad and the pizza place don't count. Right? <laughs> Who won? How do you explain 120 to still growing, still counting? Jesus kept his promise. That's how you explain it. And because he kept that promise, the resurrection promise, that becomes the foundation for trusting all the other promises of God. So the resurrection is not just a fact for us to believe or, okay, that's history. The resurrection becomes a foundation for our future of moving forward in participation with the promises of God. How God invites you into his story, how God woos you into his family, how God includes you into his kingdom is through his precious and glorious and true promises. Listen to what Paul would later say. Because he would say, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, everything falls down. It's the foundation. So here's what Paul says. He says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is useless. We're out of a job. We're going home. And your faith is useless. 
If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. See, our biggest problems are sin, shame, and guilt, right? And death, still guilty of your sins. And he says in that, and it goes on, he says, in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. So all loved ones who have died believing in Christ, believing that heaven awaited them, lost, gone. And if our hope is in Christ only for this life, if we're only hoping in Christ for this life expectancy, we are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. Now flip that on its head and you'll discover five gifts, five promises of the resurrection that the resurrection makes true. The first one is this, that what the apostles preach and teach, they preach and teach what is true. That gives us confidence when we go to the Bible. How will we know the Bible is true? Because the resurrection validates the witness accounts, the testimonies of Jesus. So we have an authoritative source of truth. Secondly, our faith is well-founded and our faith is worth it. We are not a, we're not a group of people who just get around and, and, and talk about things. And Our faith is well-founded on a fact and on a foundation, and it's worth it. It's worth it. See, again, some of you here today, the reason you're sort of waffling or your Christianity has grown cold and stale is because you're like, man, I'm not sure it's well-founded, and is it going to be worth it? And that's a promise battle more than it is a did it really happen or did it not happen battle. It's a promise battle. The world is saying, hey, it'd be worth it if you follow me. Eve, Adam, it'd be worth it if you ate the fruit. It's just a promise battle. But because the resurrection is, is true, it makes it true that it's, we're, our, our faith is well-founded and our life of faith will be worth it. Third benefit, third promise the resurrection, resurrection makes true is we can be forgiven of our sins. God will forgive us of our sins because we have, he has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus in our place. Fourth promise, eternal life is available for those who are in Christ. There is something past the grave. When our bio biology runs out, when our biology shuts off, when life is taken, physical life is taken from us, there is spiritual life available for those in Christ. How do you know that's true? Because of the resurrection. And then finally, Christ followers are to be envied, not pitied, for our hope and joy. Because our hope and joy is eternal. Our hope and joy is greater than, what are you doing on Friday night? Our hope and joy is greater than, man, are you looking forward to spring break? Our hope and joy is greater than what might happen. You know, are we going to get the job or not or the stock market? Our hope and joy are greater than that. They're founded on the resurrection reality. Now, here's the challenge, though, right? Here's the challenge. The disciples lived for a day and a half or so as if it would not happen. We often live as if it did not happen. The disciples often live, lived as if it would not happen, but we live sometimes as if the resurrection is just something past tense with no implications for the future. At least not our future tomorrow morning. At least not the future of our marriage. At least not the future of how we handle our money or how we view our identity. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it does something for us when we're at the funeral home. What about today? What about tomorrow? But remember, promises require participation. And so there's always this battle. Do you trust? Do we trust the promises of God or not? And so Jesus comes back to his disciples after he's told them, hey, I am going to suffer. I am going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to be raised. 
And because I am doing that, I'm going to open up a whole nother way of living, a whole nother life for you, a whole nother future for you. But there's a process to get to the payoff. And here's what he says. He says he calls the crowd along with the disciples, and he said, if anyone wants to follow after me, the one who's going to come back from the dead, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Promise, process, payoff. Process is a little, this is where we waffle, right? We don't like that deny myself part. We like the payoff part. He says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Let things go. Drop the reins. Give up the steering wheel of your life. Let God pilot your car, write your story, drop the pencil. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel, the achievement of Jesus and his death and resurrection will save it. And so what happens to the guy named Peter? When Jesus rose again, Peter's dream life died. His dream was to be part of the cabinet of an earthly political king that Jesus would establish in geographic Israel. That was his dream. It died. But his best life became possible. Could that be true of us today? That God's offering you better and best, but something's going to have to die, something's going to have to let go, control's going to have to be surrendered, self is going to have to be denied, promise, process, payoff. Here's the steps. First, we would say this. God's promises require our yes. You got to say yes. You got to say yes. And then they bring again to reframe our perspective. They override our preferences. They overcome our problems and they set our purpose. Our possibilities and our potential are set as high as the promises of God. Consider some of these promises. Consider probably the, the, grand one, the grandest one of all comes out of Romans 8, where we're told that we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. We get in on God's purpose through the door of believing and trusting in God's promises. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us everything else for our purposes? So we'll, if God did this to Jesus, to his son, how will he not take care of us and work everything out for our good? That's this solid logic of heaven. He says, for Christ Jesus died for us. He was raised to life for us, resurrection foundation. And he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading, praying for us overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. There's probably not a single person here today that doesn't want to be a part of an overwhelming victory. Promise, process, payoff. Probably people here today worried about their future. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. Lord, you're my portion and my cup of blessing. God is the prize. God is number one. There's really no number two. And when that's true... God, you hold my future. There's those of us, you've got activities. You're raising kids. You're starting a business. You're completing school. You're dealing with peer pressure. Proverbs 16.3, commit your activities to, activities to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit to God. Your plans will be established. 
People here today weary, exhausted. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. People here today carrying sin, shame, and guilt and regret, wondering if the past counts more than the future. But he, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Promise, process, payoff. Now, there's some of you here today, and you left God. You know you can rejoin him at the intersection of wherever your life is right now and his promises. You can rejoin him. He doesn't change. His promises still stand. The only kind of people he can make promises to are people like you and me who make mistakes, who are sinners, who are unworthy of the gift of God's Son. So you can rejoin God today. You can rejoin the life that he has for you. Zechariah the prophet says it this way, Return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And then finally, the resurrection-based promises of God must be viewed as more than true. They're trustworthy and valuable enough to give our yes and then to take a step in the path laid out before us by the promise of God. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I need everybody to listen. Here's the problem in the Bible Belt, okay? Satan believes the resurrection happened. Is your belief any different than his? Satan just doesn't believe the implications and the value of the resurrection. The resurrection proves Jesus is the Messiah, Savior, King, Lord, Leader, Forgiver, Counselor, Comforter. He's all of those things. He's portion. He's prize. Satan rejects all that. He believes the facts. So I don't want you to come in here and walk out of here, turn your TV off, turn your computer off and say, hey, I believe in the resurrection. Yes, believe in the resurrection. But do you believe in the path laid before you because of the resurrection? That God wants to be your Lord, your King, your Savior. That God is interested in how you raise your kids, how you handle your money. That God has a future for you. So God, I don't, we don't want to just come in here and look back at what happened 2,000 years ago and just accept the resurrection as a fact. We want to come in, accept the resurrection as a fact, stand on it as a foundation, move ahead into a future of hope and joy, believing the best is yet to come when I follow King Jesus. So would you today, wherever you need to, give God your yes and take a step. Give God your yes and take a step. For some of you, the step could be, I'm going to tune in and come back next week as we begin to unpack more specific promises of God that apply to our lives. Some of you today is your day of salvation. It's your day to give Jesus Christ your sin and the steering wheel of your life. Some of you today is your day to quit dating the church and playing church and your day to become part of the church as the indomitable force that Jesus promised the gates of hell would not overcome. For that, we've got an environment called RB360. Some of you today need to go forward and public and get baptized and sign up and say, hey, I need to show the world 
I've said yes to King Jesus. Because here's the great news, church. Here's the great news. We're asking for yes and a step. God's already said yes to you. But his yes requires our participation. Let's pray. God, um, just before our campus pastors and our um, online pastor come forward, I just want us all to have a moment of space in our brain, our soul, our mind, just a moment of space, God, to listen to you. Maybe, God, we've got to let go of a false promise, an empty promise, a promise of deception, a promise that has no payoff. Maybe today, God, we've got to let go of control, deny ourselves. Maybe today we need to grab one of the promises. That's yes in Christ. As we stand on the foundation of the resurrection. But God, today, may we celebrate the resurrection, not just because it happened, but because you promised it would happen And when it happened, it opened this door to an entirely new life, an entire new orientation, an entire new perspective, with entirely new hopes and possibilities and potentials. So God, we say thank you. I pray many of us, in many areas, in many ways, are saying yes and are ready to take a step. We pray all these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.